Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. We demand justice. We demand being made financially whole. After all, it is through our hundred plus years of hard work and tax dollars, California is the great state it is today. I believe that it is the moment that we can make reparations a reality. Words themselves will never be enough. Californians speaking in front of a new task force looking at reparations for African Americans, at the history of slavery in California, and how the state could formally apologize and make amends. And I think that it is incumbent upon this uh, task force to aid in descendants of American chattel slavery and identifying their particular family history so that that is the first step in actually reclaiming everything that has been taken from us. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Now, even though California joined the union as a free state back in 1850, that didn't mean slavery didn't exist here. As gold rush prospectors flooded the state, enslaved black people sometimes came too. And even black folks who entered the state free from bondage didn't always stay free. In fact, when California passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1852, it allowed slave catchers to take free black people back to slave states. The law also sanctioned the re-enslavement of blacks freed by their enslavers. Slavery was more than a physical condition. The psychological impact it had on the aspirations of Africans was promoted through open violence without protection of the law. That's Secretary of State Shirley Weber. When she was an assembly member, she authored the bill that created that reparations task force. But there is one thing that I'm very clear about. Those who are descendants of slaves had and have the impact of that system living in them and either driving and altering their aspirations. As we continue to cover the push for reparations, we're diving back into the history of the very last case of the enslavement of Black people here in California. We're bringing you a story we first aired back in early 2020 when reporter Asala Sanapur paid a visit to a church in Sacramento. I woke up this morning with my mind. 
sitting in the first row of St. Andrew's African Methodist Episcopal Church, right up close so I can hear the choir. All around me, pews are filled with worshipers, mostly older black folks, and many have been coming here for generations. St. Andrew's is the first African-American church on the West Coast. Good morning, St. Andrews. St. Andrews is the best kept secret in the entire city of Sacramento. This is Reverend Philip R. Cousin Jr. We were organized prior to statehood, so that gives us a, a bit of a foothold here. St. Andrews was founded in 1850, a few months before California entered the Union as a free state. But many African Americans were still brought here as slaves during the gold rush. This church was created by them. It was established by free and former slave people of color who come into an area and the first thing that is done is to establish a community. And at the center of that community is always a church. And the man at the center of that church, the man who founded it, was named Daniel Blue. He's not someone they tell you about in school, but his story altered the course of California history. Daniel Blue was a former slave from Kentucky who came to California as a free man and made a fortune mining on the Sacramento River. He opened a laundry and bought a house, right next door to the pro-slavery governor. Unafraid, he started the church and held its first service in his basement. You take a Daniel Blue with everything to lose and very little to gain by putting himself out in the way that he did in this community, and yet that is what he did by choice. And that that speaks to a strength of character that I like to think came from the church. In the church, Daniel Blue even opened a school for Black and Native American children, soliciting money when the state refused to fund it. And so St. Andrews became ground zero for anti-slavery and social justice activism. In Sacramento, it was St. Andrews that was able to pull together a coalition of people of color and say, look, we can go to the court and demand these rights. We can go to the state and demand to be counted as citizens. As the first black church in California, it became the model for other African Methodist Episcopal churches around the state. In a word, Daniel Blue's influence was... Revolutionary. But Daniel Blue left another mark that even the Reverend didn't know about. He freed California's last known slave. I wonder how we can know so little about a man with such a huge impact. So to learn more, I came here to the Center for Sacramento History, where you just push a button and a wall slides open like something from a mystery movie. Behind the door are stacks of shelves, stuffed with dilapidated leather-bound newspapers and hundred-year-old court records. Kim Hayden is an archivist who's helping me sift through these documents and decipher the 19th century cursive. We have things like this 1864 probate case, which is the actual file written in 1864. So this is the case. The case is People v. Gammon, in the matter of guardianship of Ada, a.k.a. Edith. Edith was a 12-year-old slave brought to rural Sacramento from Missouri. Walter Gammon was a local farmer who illegally bought her. 
This is 1864. It's nearly 15 years after California became a free state. Witnesses say Gammon beat Edith and left her without care or clothing. But somehow Daniel Blue heard about Edith, so he filed a petition in county court, which forced Gammon to bring the girl to the judge. This is the habeas corpus for her. Greeting. We command you that you have the body of Ada, or Ada, a colored female child by you In response, Gammon, the slave owner, said Edith was there, quote, of her own free will. And it was such a typical slaveholder response. Like, oh, I'm taking care of her. I provide for her. I'm giving her room and board. I feed her. I clothe her. Um, which is what, like, southern slaveholders would say. Like, what would they have without us? So Daniel Blue requested that he become Edith's legal guardian. And the judge ruled in his favor, saying that Gammon had, quote, unlawfully and illegally detained and restrained Edith. What makes this case so significant is the timing. Because only a year before Daniel Blue's petition to the state courts, California lifted a law prohibiting African-Americans from testifying. So Daniel Blue saw an opportunity and he took it. And those Black witnesses, the people who detailed how Edith was abused, were able to testify on a young slave's behalf. I wanted to know whether Daniel Blue was celebrated in his own time by the people in his community. And once again, the Center for Sacramento History held the answer. Archivist Kim Hayden pulls out a leather-bound newspaper from the dusty archives. We're looking for Daniel Blue's obituary. Oh, there he is, there it is. It's titled, An Old Man Gone. An Old Man Gone. For a Sacramentan to have said he did not know Uncle Daniel Blue was to argue his ignorance of the city and its people. The obituary Daniel describes Blue Daniel Blue's accomplishments, intellect, how he was beloved by black and white people alike. But there's no mention of how he freed a little girl from slavery. I later learned that the 1870 census lists a woman in Sacramento named Ada, Edith's nickname. She's 19 years old, which is the same age Edith would have been. She's married to an African-American man, and they have a one-year-old son. He has been so good. He has been so good to me. In my darkest hour. In my darkest I wasn't able to reach Edith or Daniel Blue's living descendants for this story. But I can see his legacy lives on with St. Andrews and the worshipers who come together each week. Reverend Cousin says together they're carrying out Daniel Blue's vision of community, education, and social action. Whatever we do out there is an expression of what we have learned and profess to believe in here. And so we encourage everyone to participate at every level in the life of a community. And certainly that means exercising the right to vote, particularly since that is not a right that has been ours for a very long time. Reverend Cousins says voting is the antithesis of standing around and waiting for something to happen. Voting is doing it, much like establishing the first black church in California or adopting a little girl out of slavery. For the California Report, I'm Asala Sanapur in Sacramento.
Outside, the sky is heavy and close. I get a whiff of Mojave petrichor, that singular scent of rain falling on dry earth mixed with sweet creosote. Amma got grouchy when it rained, hating the snarled traffic, leaking motel roof, and flooded streets. But to me, rain in the desert felt miraculous. Abu and I would buy firewood and make s'mores. Abu never talked about his parents or family in Pakistan. When it rained, though, he told me stories of his college years in London. That's an excerpt from a new book about growing up in the Mojave Desert. Author Sabah Tahir based her young adult novel called All My Rage on her own experiences growing up in her family's 18-room motel as the child of Pakistani immigrants and one of the few South Asians in her rural town. She's an award-winning young adult author, and her earlier series, Ember in the Ashes, which had a woman of color hero, hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And she joins us now to talk about her new book. Hi there, Sabah. Hello. How are you? Good. It's great to talk to you. I really love this book. Thank you so much. And it's semi-autobiographical, right? Although the town called Juniper is an invented name and and Friarsfield, I'm imagining, maybe is based on Bakersfield? Yes, that's true. (laughs) So you grew up in the Mojave Desert in your family's motel. What was that like? The motel was this experience of extremes. Sometimes it was wonderful. Sometimes it was awful. And I think the thing that I remember the most are all the different types of people who would come through. And everything I learned from how to curse (laughs) to, you know, the different ways that people expressed kindness. Um, We had a tenant once who paid us with a bird Mm. um, because I think he didn't have enough money to make rent, but he had all these birds that he loved that he kept in the room. We had a tenant once who um, made some type of damage in the room. I think it was like a hole in the wall or something. And he left without saying anything about it. But my parents found money in the room and they assumed that that was his way of saying, hey, sorry about this. Hope this will pay for it. But we also had people who wouldn't pay rent defaced rooms, who called us names, who were abusive. And so it really was an experience of extremes. And you were a young person and then a teenager growing up in the motel. What were you like as a teenager? I think that's a hard question to answer because it's difficult to look back at oneself realistically, I guess. Um, But I was quiet. I loved reading. I was in my head a lot. And I think that there was so much more going on inside than I ever really expressed. So I would lose myself in books and reading and writing stories. And you started writing fantasy books for young adults. Why young adults? It is an age of such change and such growth. And so much of story is about the arc about the change and the growth within a character. And so to me, it seems like a natural fit Um, to write about young adults. I also really love writing for children. I love writing for children who are at a vulnerable time in their life and to write stories that are, in my mind, realistic, but that also offer hope. Because as a young person myself, I really needed to see hope in the books that I read. And you don't shy away from really intense themes. I mean, in this book, there's physical violence, sexual violence, racism, opioid addiction, alcoholism. How do you frame this kind of heavy stuff for a younger audience? 
I think honesty is really important. Showing the messy reality of these kids' lives, both in the struggle, but also in the beauty and in the humor. You know, allowing for a lack of resolution or a resolution that is uh, perhaps a little bit more ambiguous. Because the truth is, right, that trauma doesn't always leave us. We can heal from it, um, and sometimes we can shed it, but not always. And I want to portray that realistically for young people because I don't think young people are always taught how to deal with trauma. And yet, young people go through immense amounts of trauma, whether adults want to admit it or not. Well, this book features two teenagers. They're both Pakistani-American, Salahuddin and Noor. They're longtime friends, and they're both kind of outcasts at their school. Noor works at her uncle's liquor store. And, you know, one of her big dreams is getting out of Juniper and the desert and being able to go to college at UCLA. You can't sneak into the Juniper Mosque because it's not exactly a mosque. It's a 12 by 12 room in the north wing of the all-faith chapel on Juniper's military base. Hindus get the room on Thursdays, Muslims on Fridays, Jews on Saturdays. Protestants get it the rest of the week. I haven't been here in months because it requires going through the gates of the military base. And that means I have to show my ID and answer questions like, where are you going? And why? And wait, we have a mosque on base? From soldiers holding giant guns. Today, though, I have time. Oluchi, the hospital's coordinator, let me off early. Go have a life, Noor, she said. Go to a party, live a little. You're like a grizzled old sea dog in a teenager's body. But I'm not in a partying mood. I'm in an, oh crap, I better pray, mood. Since my last rejection, I've gotten another. Northwestern doesn't want me, which only leaves UCLA. This Friday afternoon, there are five other people at the mosque. Imam Shafiq, Khadija, an army guy in camo, and an older couple I don't recognize. There's no sermon at this time. Imam Shafiq saves that for the noon namaz. Prayers just started when I enter, and Khadija beckons me to sit next to her. But today, all I can think is that if I don't get into UCLA, I'm stuck in Juniper, working at the liquor shop. That's what you actually did in your own life. You left the desert and went to UCLA before, you know, heading to the Washington Post, becoming a journalist. How much is Noor based on your own life? I think there are parts of Noor's personality, particularly her love for music, that are very much based on my life. Um, I also worked um, not in a liquor store, but in a gas station. Mm. But, you know, I experienced that sort of existence where you work at a place and people think they know everything about you because you work there. And I think that's something Noor is also dealing with, where people just assume that because she works at this liquor store, she is, you know, she has these qualities or she is this type of person or this is the type of future that she has. And I definitely experienced that as a young person working um, post high school, you know, during one summer at my father's gas station. Well, as you say, she loves music and she's constantly got her headphones in. And I love how she's always like sharing her headphones with other people when what she wants to express comes out better through music. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got a lot of music in this book. Tell us about maybe a couple of the favorite songs that you highlight and and why. So one of the songs that means so much to Noor is Bullet with Butterfly Wings by Smashing Pumpkins. And I think people who know the song will recognize the title of this book. <laughs> um, 
You know, it's this 90s anthem, and it really encompasses um, this sense of rage that Noor feels that is buried very deep. Another song that um, that Noor loves is by Masuma Anwar called Tenu Golgaya. And it's a little harder to find, but Masuma Anwar has this really deep voice and this incredible range. Noor really struggles to express her feelings. She, you know, when she speaks out loud, she, like, ends up using short sentences and, you know, really having a hard time saying what she means. And so one of the reasons why she loves Masuma Anwar so much is because this woman puts so much feeling into a single word. Once, I was naive enough to stare into the sun. Anna Leon's song, Once, comes up on Noor's playlist as Noor and Slahuddin are um, driving together. And they've just shared some deep secrets with each other. And this is a song that is all about regret and the past. Forgot what I used to like about me. I've fallen before, and that's hurt me. I forgot who I used to be. I close my eyes and lean my head back. The road is smooth beneath the wheels, the window cool against the bruise on my cheek. Anna Leon sings once about what it means to move on from the past. Sometimes, Salahuddin, I say, it feels like too much. I think about the we've read in school. Those books all about one problem. A kid who's bullied, a kid who's beaten, a kid who's poor. And I think of us and how we've won the luck lottery. We have all the problems. Nazar Sibajal. He utters Auntie Misba's oath against the evil eye so fervently that I laugh. Famine comes when you lament the flood. I hear Auntie Misba say in my head, it could always be worse. Do you think our adulthood will make up for everything we had to deal with as kids? I ask him. Like, we get out of here and you go to med school and I become a writer and our lives will be amazing? They don't have to be amazing. Just not. My face throbs. Not this. You're going to escape this place, Noor. He looks over at me. You're going to become a doctor. Your adulthood is going to make up for all of it. The family motel in this novel is run by Salahuddin's mom, Misba. She's just got these really beautiful passages that come in intermittently between the teenager's story, her memories of how she came from Lahore, Pakistan, to the Mojave Desert. Lights twinkled in the distance, cheerful against the empty midnight desert surrounding them. As we turned off the highway and down a narrow connecting road, strange rock formations rose up around us. It felt as if we were in another world. My stomach jumped in excitement. This was the beginning of a new adventure, the kind I'd wanted to have as a girl. 
the town appeared almost abandoned, other than a McDonald's where a lone car dawdled. A police vehicle roamed the main avenue, slowing down as we passed. There, I pointed to a battered green sign beside a parking lot that said McFinn's Ford. Yucca Avenue. We parked beside a cluster of low structures. In front of them, a waist-high white wall formed a rectangle around three pale trees and a stretch of dead grass. The trees clacked in the wind. Beyond the front yard, a squat building with a broad glass window had a single light glowing within. The rest of the motel was dark. A cat watched from the brick wall, unafraid. When I emerged from the car, the wind was so strong that it nearly ripped my hijab off. A large, unlit sign moaned like a cranky old man. Yukaipa in motel, it said. The first thing we must do, I told Tufik, is give this place a new name. You know, your earlier series was really more fantasy. What made you feel ready to mine your own background and do something that was a little bit closer to your own lived experience now? I don't think I was ready. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I I wrote the book over the course of 15 years. Wow. Um, And I think what I learned in that time was the depth of my own strength. Um, For years, I wrote this book in isolation. I didn't share pages. I didn't talk about it with, with anyone. It was just this conversation that I was having with myself, and it was one that required patience and that required kindness. Um, I've never been a person who thinks a lot about, you know, self-love, but this book required a lot of self-love and a lot of hope Mm. to write, Um, you know, love and hope for who I'd become as an adult and love and hope for the little kid out in the desert who didn't know how to deal with the difficulties that came her way, but who survived them. Saba, do you feel like the person you've become, you know, successful author, uh, mom, you know, an adult now, do you feel like the young Saba could have envisioned how your life would have turned out? Oh, absolutely not. I think the young Saba would have been thrilled. (laughs) She would have been so happy. Um, I don't think because of any of the success, I think because all she ever wanted to do was tell stories. And that was not something that I had the courage to do until I was in my late 20s. I didn't even call myself a writer until I was in my early 30s. So I think young Saba would be really proud of, of big Saba. <laughs> what is bringing you joy and resilience right now? We've all been through such a crazy time in the world, and, you know, we all have so many challenges. But what is, what's making you happy right now? I think there's so much wonderful art being created. There are so many wonderful books out in the world right now. Um, there's so much fantastic music that's being created. I've been so amazed by my kids and my nieces and nephews and just their positivity, despite everything they've gone through in the past two years, how laughter is something that is just a part of their daily, like a part, like hourly a part of their life. And mm. there are times when I'm stressing over something and in the background, I will hear my kids just busting up over something ridiculous and it's just this wonderful reminder to get out of my head mm-hmm. <laughs> and to to put away some of these worries and 
to just let myself laugh. And that's also a part of all my rage, right? That is such an important part of this book is that there is so much hope. There, there is humor. There is light, you know, in this story of some really difficult things because that is often how we get through the most difficult parts of our life is with humor and friendship and hope. Well, I certainly got a lot of joy from reading this book, and I want to thank you for it, and thank you for talking with us. Thank you guys so much. Sabah Tahir's new novel is called All My Rage. And that's it for our show this week. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director, and our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amanda Font and Izzy Bloom. Special thanks this week to Lakshmi Sarah and to Otis R. Taylor Jr., as well as the Gold Chains Project from the ACLU of Northern California. I'm Sasha Koka. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.